BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Book 2, Chapter 5 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two Riches. Chapter Five Something Wrong Somewhere. The family had been a month or two at Venice when Mr. Dorrit, who was much among counts and marquises, and had but scant leisure, set an hour of one day apart beforehand for the purpose of holding some conference with Mrs. General. The time he had reserved in his mind arriving, he sent Mr. Tinkler, his valet, to Mrs. General's apartment, which would have absorbed about a third of the area of the Marshalsea, to present his compliments to that lady, and represent him as desiring the favour of an interview. It being that period of the forenoon, when the various members of the family had coffee in their own chambers, some couple of hours before assembling at breakfast in a faded hall which had once been sumptuous but was now the prey of watery vapours and a settled melancholy, Mrs. General was accessible to the valet. That envoy found her on a little square of carpet, so extremely diminutive in reference to the size of her stone and marble floor, that she looked as if she might have had it spread for the trying on of a ready-made pair of shoes, or as if she had come into the possession of the enchanted piece of carpet bought for forty purses by one of the three princes in the Arabian Nights, and had that moment been transported on it, at a wish, into a palatial salon, with which it had no connection. Mrs. General, replying to the envoy, as she set down her empty coffee-cup, that she was willing at once to proceed to Mr. Dorrit's apartment, and spare him the trouble of coming to her, which, in his gallantry, he had proposed, the envoy threw open the door, and escorted Mrs. General to the presence. It was quite a walk, by mysterious staircases and corridors, from Mrs. General's apartment, hoodwinked by a narrow side-street with a low gloomy bridge in it, and dungeon-like opposite tenements, their walls besmeared with a thousand downward stains and streaks, as if every crazy aperture in them had been weeping tears of rust into the Adriatic for centuries, to Mr. Dorrit's apartment, with a whole English house-front of window, a prospect of beautiful church domes rising into the blue sky sheer out of the water which reflected them, and a hushed murmur of the Grand Canal laving the doorways below, where his gondolas and gondoliers attended his pleasure, drowsily swinging in a little forest of piles. Mr. Dorrit, in a resplendent dressing-gown and cap, the dormant grub that had so long bided its time among the collegians, had burst into a rare butterfly rose to receive Mrs. General. A chair to Mrs. General. An easier chair, sir. What are you doing? 
What are you about? What do you mean? Now leave us.' "'Mrs. General,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'I took the liberty—by no means—' Mrs. General interposed. "'I was quite at your disposition. I had had my coffee.' "'I took the liberty,' said Mr. Dorrit again, with the magnificent placidity of one who was above correction, "'to solicit the favour of a little private conversation with you, because I feel rather worried respecting my—my ha, my younger daughter. You will have observed a great difference of temperament, madam, between my two daughters.' said Mrs. General, in response, crossing her gloved hands. She was never without gloves, and they never creased, and always fitted. "'There is a great difference.' "'May I ask to be favoured with your view of it?' said Mr. Dorrit, with a deference not incompatible with majestic serenity. "'Fanny,' returned Mrs. General, "'has force of character and self-reliance. Amy, none.' "'None? Oh, Mrs. General, ask the Marshalsea stones and bars. Oh, Mrs. General, ask the milliner who taught her to work, and the dancing-master who taught her sister to dance. Oh, Mrs. General, Mrs. General, ask me, her father, what I owe her, and hear my testimony touching the life of this slighted little creature from her childhood up.' No such adjuration entered Mr. Dorrit's head. He looked at Mrs. General, seated in her usual erect attitude on her coach-box behind the proprieties, and he said in a thoughtful manner, "'True, madam.' "'I would not,' said Mrs. General, "'be understood to say, observe, that there is nothing to improve in Fanny, but there is material there, perhaps indeed a little too much.' "'Will you be kind enough, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'to be her more explicit. I do not quite understand my elder daughter's having, hmm, too much material. What material? Fanny, returned Mrs. General, at present forms too many opinions. Perfect breeding forms none, and is never demonstrative. Lest he himself should be found deficient in perfect breeding, Mr. Dorrit hastened to reply, "'Unquestionably, madam, you are right,' Mrs. General returned in her emotionless and expressionless manner. "'I believe so.' "'But you are aware, my dear madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'that my daughters had the misfortune to lose their lamented mother when they were very young, and that, in consequence of my not having been until lately the recognised heir to my property, they have lived with me as a comparatively poor, though always proud, gentleman in her hum, retirement. I do not, said Mrs. General, lose sight of the circumstance. Madam, pursued Mr. Dorrit, of my daughter Fanny, under her present guidance, and with such an example constantly before her, Mrs. General shut her eyes. I have no misgivings. There is adaptability of character in Fanny. But my younger daughter, Mrs. General, rather worries and vexes my thoughts. I must inform you that she has always been my favourite. There is no accounting, said Mrs. General, for these partialities. 
Ah, no,' assented Mr. Dorrit. "'No. Now, madam, I am troubled by noticing that Amy is not, so to speak, one of ourselves. She does not care to go about with us. She is lost in the society we have here. Our tastes are evidently not her tastes. Which—' said Mr. Dorrit, summing up with judicial gravity, is to say, in other words, that there is something wrong in, uh, Amy. "'May be inclined to the supposition,' said Mrs. General, with a little touch of varnish, "'that something is referable to the novelty of the position.' "'Excuse me, madam,' observed Mr. Dorrit, rather quickly, the daughter of a gentleman, though ha, uh, himself at one time comparatively far from affluent, comparatively, and herself reared in hmm, retirement, need not of necessity find this position so very novel. True, said Mrs. General, true. Therefore, madam, said Mr. Dorrit, I took the liberty— he laid an emphasis on the phrase, and repeated it, as though he stipulated with urbane firmness that he must not be contradicted again. "'I took the liberty of requesting this interview, in order that I might mention the topic to you, and inquire how you would advise me.' "'Mr. Dorrit,' returned Mrs. General, "'I have conversed with Amy several times since we have been residing here on the general subject of the formation of a demeanour.' She has expressed herself to me as wondering exceedingly at Venice. I have mentioned to her that it is better not to wonder. I pointed out to her that the celebrated Mr. Eustace, the classical tourist, did not think much of it, and that he compared the Rialto, greatly to its disadvantage, with Westminster and Blackfriars Bridges. I need not add, after what you have said, that I have not yet found my argument successful. You do me the honour to ask me what to advise. It always appears to me— if this should prove to be a baseless assumption, I shall be pardoned, that Mr. Dorrit has been accustomed to exercise influence over the minds of others. <coughs> "'Madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'I have been at the head of a, of a considerable community. You are right in supposing that I am not unaccustomed to an influential position.' "'I am happy,' returned Mrs. General, to be so corroborated. I would therefore the more confidently recommend that Mr. Dorrit should speak to Amy himself, and make his observations and wishes known to her. Being his favourite, besides, and no doubt attached to him, she is all the more likely to yield to his influence. "'I had anticipated your suggestion, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'but I was not sure that I might, mm, not encroach on—' "'On my province, Mr. Dorrit,' said Mrs. General, graciously, "'do not mention it.' "'Then, with your leave, madam,' resumed Mr. Dorrit, ringing his little bell to summon his valet, "'I will send for her at once. "'Does Mr. Dorrit wish me to remain?' "'Perhaps, if you have no other engagement, you would not object for a minute or two?' "'Not at all.' So, Tinkler the valet— was instructed to find Miss Amy's maid, and to request that subordinate to inform Miss Amy that Mr. Dorrit wished to see her in his room. In delivering this charge to Tinkler, Mr. Dorrit looked severely at him, and also kept a jealous eye upon him until he went out of the door, 
mistrusting that he might have something in his mind prejudicial to the family dignity, that he might have even got wind of some collegiate joke before he came into the service, and might be derisively reviving its remembrance at the present moment. If Tinkler had happened to smile, however faintly and innocently, nothing would have persuaded Mr. Dorrit to the hour of his death but that this was the case. As Tinkler happened, however, very fortunately for himself, to be of a serious and composed countenance, he escaped the secret danger that threatened him. And on his return, when Mr. Dorrit eyed him again, he announced Miss Amy as if she had come to a funeral. He left a vague impression on Mr. Dorrit's mind that he was a well-conducted young fellow, who had been brought up in the study of his catechism by a widowed mother. "'Amy,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'you have just now been the subject of some conversation between myself and Mrs. General. We agree that you scarcely seem at home here. Ha! Uh, how is this?' A pause. "'I think, father—' I require a little time. Papa is a preferable mode of address, observed Mrs. General. Father is rather vulgar, my dear. The word papa, besides, gives a pretty form to the lips. Papa, potatoes, poultry, prunes, and prism are all very good words for the lips, especially prunes and prism. You will find it serviceable in the formation of a demeanour, if you sometimes say to yourself in company, on entering a room, for instance, Papa, potatoes, poultry, prunes, and prism, prunes, and prism. "'Pray, my child,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'attend to the, um, precepts of Mrs. General.' Poor little Dorrit, with a rather forlorn glance at that imminent varnisher, promised to try. "'You say, Amy,' pursued Mr. Dorrit, "'That you think you require time. Time for what?' Another pause. "'To become accustomed to the novelty of my life was all I meant,' said Little Dorrit, with her loving eyes upon her father, whom she had very nearly addressed as poultry, if not prunes and prism too, in her desire to submit herself to Mrs. General and please him. Mr. Dorrit frowned, and looked anything but pleased. "'Amy!' he returned, it appears to me, I must say, that you have had abundance of time for that. Ah! You surprise me. You disappoint me. Fanny has conquered any such little difficulties, and, hmm, why not you?' "'I hope I shall do better soon,' said Little Dorrit. "'I hope so,' returned her father. "'I, uh, I most devoutly hope so, Amy. I sent for you in order that I might say, hmm, impressively say, in the presence of Mrs. General, to whom we are all so much indebted for obligingly being present among us on her, on this or any other occasion, Mrs. General shut her eyes, that I uh, uh, um, am not pleased with you. You make Mrs. General's a thankless task. You uh, embarrass me very much. You have always, as I have informed Mrs. General, been my favourite child. 
I have always made you a, hmm, a friend and companion. In return, I beg, I, ah, I do beg, that you accommodate yourself better to, hmm, circumstances, and dutifully do what becomes your, your station. Mr. Dorrit was even a little more fragmentary than usual, being excited on the subject, and anxious to make himself particularly emphatic. "'I do beg,' he repeated, "'that this may be attended to, and that you will seriously take pains and try to conduct yourself in a manner both becoming your position as uh, Miss Amy Dorrit, and satisfactory to myself and Mrs. General.' That lady shut her eyes again, on being again referred to. Then, slowly opening them and rising, added these words. "'If Miss Amy Dorrit will direct her own attention to, and will accept of my poor assistance in, the formation of a surface, Mr. Dorrit will have no further cause of anxiety. May I take this opportunity of remarking, as an instance in point, that it is scarcely delicate to look at vagrants with the attention which I have seen bestowed upon them by a very dear young friend of mine? They should not be looked at. Nothing disagreeable should ever be looked at. Apart from such a habit standing in the way of that graceful equanimity of surface which is so expressive of good breeding, it hardly seems compatible with refinement of mind. A truly refined mind will seem to be ignorant of the existence of anything that is not perfectly proper, placid, and pleasant." Having delivered this exalted sentiment, Mrs. General made a sweeping obeisance, and retired with an expression of mouth indicative of prunes and prism. Little Dorrit, whether speaking or silent, had preserved her quiet earnestness and her loving look. It had not been clouded except for a passing moment until now. But now that she was left alone with him, the fingers of her lightly folded hands were agitated, and there was repressed emotion in her face. Not for herself. She might feel a little wounded, but her care was not for herself. Her thoughts still turned, as they always had turned, to him. A faint misgiving, which had hung about her since their accession to fortune, that even now she could never see him as he used to be, before the prison days, had gradually begun to assume form in her mind. She felt that, in what he had just now said to her, and in his whole bearing towards her, there was the well-known shadow of the Marshalsea wall. It took a new shape, but it was the old, sad shadow. She began, with sorrowful unwillingness, to acknowledge to herself that she was not strong enough to keep off the fear that no space in the life of man could overcome that quarter of a century behind the prison bars. She had no blame to bestow upon him, therefore nothing to reproach him with, no emotions in her faithful heart, but great compassion and unbounded tenderness. This is why it was that, even as he sat before her on his sofa, in the brilliant light of a bright Italian day, the wonderful city without, and the splendours of an old palace within, she saw him at the moment, in the long familiar gloom of his Marshalsea lodging, and wished to take her seat beside him, and comfort him, and be again full of confidence with him, and of usefulness to him. If he divined what was in her thoughts, his own were not in tune with it. After some uneasy moving in his seat, he got up and walked about, looking very much dissatisfied. "'Is there anything else you wish to say to me, dear father?' "'No, no, nothing else.' 
I am sorry you have not been pleased with me, dear. I hope you will not think of me with displeasure now. I am going to try, more than ever, to adapt myself as you wish to what surrounds me, for, indeed, I have tried all along, though I have failed, I know. Amy, he returned, turning short upon her, you ha habitually hurt me. Hurt you, father? I? There is a, hmm, a topic, said Mr. Dorrit, looking all about the ceiling of the room, and never at the attentive, uncomplainingly shocked face, a painful topic, a series of events which I wish, ha, altogether to obliterate. This is understood by your sister, who has already remonstrated with you in my presence. It is understood by your brother. It is understood by, ha, ah, hmm, by every one of delicacy and sensitiveness, except yourself. Ha, ah, I am sorry to say, except yourself. You, Amy, hmm, you alone and only you, constantly revive the topic, though not in words. She laid her hand on his arm. She did nothing more. She gently touched him. The trembling hand may have said, with some expression, think of me, think how I have worked, think of my many cares. But she said not a syllable herself. There was a reproach in the touch, so addressed to him, that she had not foreseen, or she would have withheld her hand. He began to justify himself in a heated, stumbling, angry manner, which made nothing of it. I was there, all those years. I was ah, universally acknowledged as the head of the place. I, hmm, I cause you to be respected there, Amy. I, ah, hmm, I gave my family a position there. I deserve a return. I claim a return. I say, sweep it off the face of the earth and begin afresh. Is that much? I ask, is that much?" He did not once look at her, as he rambled on in this way, but gesticulated at, and appealed to, the empty air. "'I have suffered. Probably I know how much I have suffered better than any one. I, I say, than any one. If I can put that aside, if I can eradicate the marks of what I have endured, and can emerge before the world, ah, uh, uh, gentlemen, unspoiled, unspotted, is it a great deal to expect, I say again, is it a great deal to expect that my children should, hmm, do the same, and sweep that accursed experience off the face of the earth? In spite of his flustered state, he made all these exclamations in a carefully suppressed voice, lest the valet should overhear anything. "'Accordingly, they do it. Your sister does it. Your brother does it. You alone, my favourite child, whom I made the friend companion of my life when you were a mere, hmm, baby, do not do it. You alone say you can't do it. I provide you with valuable assistance to do it. I attach an accomplished and highly-bred lady, ah, Mrs. General, to you, for the purpose of doing it. Is it surprising that I should be displeased? Is it necessary that I should defend myself for expressing my displeasure? No." Notwithstanding which, he continued to defend himself, 
without any abatement of his flushed mood. "'I am careful to appeal to that lady for confirmation before I express any displeasure at all. I, hmm, I necessarily make that appeal within limited bounds, or I, I should render legible by that lady what I desire to be blotted out. Am I selfish? Do I complain for my own sake? No, no, principally for, ah, hmm, your sake, Amy. This last consideration plainly appeared, from his manner of pursuing it, to have just that instant come into his head. I said I was hurt. So I am. So I, ah, am, determined to be whatever is advanced to the contrary. I am hurt that my daughter, seated in the, hum, lap of fortune, should mope and retire and proclaim herself unequal to her destiny. I am hurt that she should, ha, ah, systematically, reproduce what the rest of us blot out, and seem, hmm, I had almost said, positively anxious, to announce to wealthy and distinguished society that she was born and bred in, ha, ah, hmm, a place that I myself decline to name. But there is no inconsistency, ah, not the least, in my feeling hurt, and yet complaining principally for your sake, Amy. I do, I say again, I do. It is for your sake that I wish you, under the auspices of Mrs. General, to form ah, hmm, a surface. It is for your sake that I wish you to have a ha, ha, truly refined mind and, in the striking words of Mrs. General, to be ignorant of everything that is not perfectly proper, placid, and pleasant. He had been running down by jerks during this last speech, like a sort of ill-adjusted alarm. The touch was still upon his arm. He fell silent, and after looking about the ceiling again for a little while, looked down at her. Her head drooped, and he could not see her face but her touch was tender and quiet, and in the expression of her dejected figure there was no blame, nothing but love. He began to whimper, just as he had done that night in the prison, when she afterwards sat at his bedside till morning, exclaimed that he was a poor ruin and a poor wretch in the midst of his wealth, and clasped her in his arms. "'Hush, hush, my own dear, kiss me,' was all she said to him. His tears were soon dried, much sooner than on former occasion, and he was presently afterwards very high with his valet as a way of writing himself for having shed any. With one remarkable exception, to be recorded in its place, this was the only time in his life of freedom and fortune when he spoke to his daughter Amy of the old days. But now the breakfast hour arrived, and with it Miss Fanny from her apartment, and Mr. Edward from his apartment both these young persons of distinction were something the worse for late hours. As to Miss Fanny, she had become the victim of an associate mania for what she called going into society, and would have gone into it head foremost fifty times between sunset and sunrise, if so many opportunities had been at her disposal. As to Mr. Edward, he too had a large acquaintance, and was generally engaged, for the most part, in dicing circles or others of a kindred nature during the greater part of every night. 
for this gentleman, when his fortunes changed, had stood at the great advantage of being already prepared for the highest associates, and having little to learn. So much was he indebted to the happy accidents which had made him acquainted with horse-dealing and billiard-marking. At breakfast Mr. Frederick Dorrit likewise appeared. As the old gentleman inhabited the highest story of the palace, where he might have practised pistol-shooting without much chance of discovery by the other inmates, his younger niece had taken courage to propose the restoration to him of his clarionet, which Mr. Dorrit had ordered to be confiscated, but which he had ventured to preserve. Notwithstanding some objections from Miss Fanny that it was a low instrument, and that she detested the sound of it, the concession had been made. But it was then discovered that he had had enough of it, and never played it, now that it was no longer his means of getting bread. He had insensibly acquired a new habit of shuffling into the picture-galleries, always with his twisted paper of snuff in his hand, much to the indignation of Miss Fanny, who had proposed the purchase of a gold box for him, that the family might not be discredited, which he had absolutely refused to carry when it was bought, and of passing hours and hours before the portraits of renowned Venetians. It was never made out what his dazed eye saw in them, whether he had an interest in them merely as pictures, or whether he confusedly identified them with a glory that was departed, like the strength of his own mind. But he paid his court to them with great exactness, and clearly derived pleasure from the pursuit. After the first few days, Little Dorrit happened one morning to assist at these attentions. It so evidently heightened his gratification that she often accompanied him afterwards, and the greatest delight of which the old man had shown himself susceptible since his ruin arose out of these excursions, when he would carry a chair about for her from picture to picture, and stand behind it, in spite of all her remonstrances, silently presenting her to the noble Venetians. It fell out that, at this family breakfast, he referred to their having seen in a gallery, on the previous day, the lady and gentleman whom they had encountered on the great St. Bernard. "'I forget the name,' said he. "'I dare say you remember them, William. I dare say you do, Edward.' "'I remember them well enough,' said the latter. "'I should think so,' observed Miss Fanny, with a toss of her head and a glance at her sister. "'But they would not have been recalled to our remembrance, I suspect, if Uncle hadn't tumbled over the subject.' "'My dear, what a curious phrase!' said Mrs. General, would not inadvertently lighted upon, or accidentally referred to, be better? "'Thank you very much, Mrs. General,' returned the young lady. "'No, I think not. On the whole, I prefer my own expression.' This was always Miss Fanny's way of receiving a suggestion from Mrs. General, but she always stored it up in her mind, and adopted it at another time. "'I should have mentioned our having met Mr. and Mrs. Gowan, Fanny,' said Little Dorrit, "'even if Uncle had not.' I have scarcely seen you since, you know. I meant to have spoken of it at breakfast, because I should like to pay a visit to Mrs. Gowan, and to become better acquainted with her, if Papa and Mrs. General do not object. "'Well, Amy,' said Fanny, "'I'm sure I'm glad to find you at last expressing a wish to become better acquainted with anybody in Venice. Though whether Mr. and Mrs. Gowan are desirable acquaintances remains to be determined.' "'Mrs. Gowan, I spoke of, dear.' "'No doubt,' said Fanny. "'But you can't separate her from her husband, I believe, without an act of Parliament.' "'Do you think, Papa,' inquired Little Dorrit, 
with diffidence and hesitation, "'there is any objection to my making this visit?' "'Really,' he replied, "'I, ha, uh, what is Mrs. General's view?' Mrs. General's view was that not having the honour of any acquaintance with the lady and gentleman referred to, she was not in a position to varnish the present article. She could only remark— as a general principle observed in the varnishing trade, that much depended on the quarter in which the lady under consideration was accredited to a family so conspicuously niched in the social temple as the family of Dorrit. At this remark the face of Mr. Dorrit gloomed considerably. He was about connecting the accrediting with an obtrusive person of the name of Clennam, whom he imperfectly remembered in some former state of existence, to blackball the name of Gowan finally when Edward Dorrit, Esquire, came into the conversation, with his glass in his eye, and the preliminary remark of, "'I say, you there, go out, will you?' which was addressed to a couple of men who were handing the dishes round, as a courteous intimation that their services could be temporarily dispensed with. Those menials having obeyed the mandate, Edward Dorrit, Esquire, proceeded. "'Perhaps it's a matter of policy to let you all know that these gowns—' in whose favour, or at least the gentleman's, I can't be supposed to be much prepossessed myself, are known to be people of importance, if that makes any difference. "'That, I would say,' observed the fair varnisher, "'makes the greatest difference, the connection in question being really people of importance and consideration.' "'As to that,' said Edwin Dorrit, Esquire, "'I'll give you the means of judging for yourself. You are acquainted, perhaps, with the famous name of Myrtle?' "'The great Myrtle!' exclaimed Mrs. General. "'The Myrtle!' said Edward Dorrit, Esquire. "'They're known to him. Mrs. Gowan, I mean the dowager, my polite friend's mother, is intimate with Mrs. Myrtle, and I know these two to be on their visiting-list. "'If so, a more undeniable guarantee could not be given,' said Mrs. General to Mr. Dorrit, raising her gloves and bowing her head, as if she were doing homage to some visible graven image." "'I beg to ask my son, from motives of uh, curiosity,' Mr. Dorrit observed, with a decided change in his manner, "'how he becomes possessed of this, um, timely information.' "'It's not a long story, sir,' returned Edward Dorrit, Esquire, "'and you shall have it out of hand. To begin with, Mrs. Myrtle is the lady you had the parley with at uh, what's-his-name place?' "'Martiny.' interposed Miss Fanny, with an air of infinite languor. "'Martiny,' assented her brother, with a slight nod and a slight wink, in acknowledgment of which Miss Fanny looked surprised, and laughed and reddened. "'How can that be, Edward?' said Mr. Dorrit. "'You informed me that the name of the gentleman with whom you conferred was, uh, Sparkler. Indeed, you showed me his card. Hmm? Sparkler.' "'No doubt of it, father. But it doesn't follow that his mother's name must be the same. Mrs. Myrtle was married before, and he is her son. She is in Rome now, where probably we shall know more of her, as you decide to winter there. Sparkler has just come here. I passed last evening in company with Sparkler. Sparkler is a very good fellow on the whole, though rather a bore on one subject, in consequence of being tremendously smitten with a certain young lady.' Here Edward Dorrit, Esquire, eyed Miss Fanny through his glass across the table. 
we happened last night to compare notes about our travels and i had the information i have given you from sparkler himself here he ceased continuing to eye miss fanny through his glass with a face much twisted and not ornamentally so in part by the action of keeping his glass in his eye and in part by the great subtlety of his smile under these circumstances said mr dorrit i believe i express the sentiments of her mrs general no less than my own when i say that there is no objection but ha hm quite the contrary to your gratifying your desire amy i trust i may ah hail this desire said mr dorrit in an encouraging and forgiving manner as an auspicious omen it is quite right to know these people it is a very proper thing mr merdle's is a name of ah world-wide repute mr merdle's undertakings are immense they bring him in such vast sums of money that they are regarded as hmm, national benefits mr merdle is the man of this time the name of merdle is the name of the age pray do everything on my behalf that is civil to mr and mrs gowan for we will ah, we will certainly notice them this magnificent accordance of mr dorrit's recognition settled the matter it was not observed that uncle had pushed away his plate and forgotten his breakfast but he was not much observed at any time except by little dorrit the servants were recalled and the meal proceeded to its conclusion mrs general rose and left the table little dorrit rose and left the table when edward and fanny remained whispering together across it and when mr dorrit remained eating figs and reading a french newspaper uncle suddenly fixed the attention of all three by rising out of his chair, striking his hand upon the table, and saying, "'Brother, I protest against it!' If he had made a proclamation in an unknown tongue, and given up the ghost immediately afterwards, he could not have astounded his audience more. The paper fell from Mr. Dorrit's hand, and he sat petrified, with a fig halfway to his mouth. "'Brother,' said the old man, conveying a surprising energy into his trembling voice i protest against it i love you you know i love you dearly in these many years i have never been untrue to you in a single thought weak as i am i would at any time have struck any man who spoke ill of you but brother 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 i protest against it it was extraordinary to see of what a burst of earnestness such a decrepit man was capable. His eyes became bright, his grey hair rose on his head, markings of purpose on his brow and face, which had faded from them for five and twenty years, started out again, and there was an energy in his hand that made its action nervous once more. "'My dear Frederick!' exclaimed Mr. Dorrit faintly. "'What is wrong? What is the matter how dare you said the old man turning round on fanny how dare you do it have you no memory have you no heart uncle cried fanny affrighted and bursting into tears 
why do you attack me in this cruel manner what have i done done returned the old man pointing to her sister's place where's your affectionate invaluable friend where's your devoted guardian where's your more than a mother how dare you set up superiorities against all these characters combined in your sister for shame you false girl for shame i love amy cried miss fanny sobbing and weeping as well as i love my life better than i love my life i don't deserve to be so treated i am as grateful to amy and as fond of amy as it is possible for any human being to be i wish i was dead i never was so wickedly wronged and only because i am anxious for the family credit to the winds with the family credit cried the old man with great scorn and indignation brother i protest against pride i protest against ingratitude i protest against any one of us here who have known what we have known and have seen what we have seen setting up any pretension that puts amy at a moment's disadvantage or to the cost of a moment's pain we may know that it's a base pretension by its having that effect it ought to bring a judgment on us brother i protest against it in the sight of god as his hand went up above his head and came down on the table it might have been a blacksmith's after a moment's silence it had relaxed into its usual weak condition he went round to his brother with his ordinary shuffling step put the hand on his shoulder and said in a softened voice william my dear i felt obliged to say it forgive me for i felt obliged to say it and then went in his bowed way out of the palace hall just as he might have gone out of the marshalsea room all this time fanny had been sobbing and crying and still continued to do so edward beyond opening his mouth in amazement had not opened his lips, and had done nothing but stare. Mr. Dorrit also had been utterly discomfited, and quite unable to assert himself in any way. Fanny now the first to speak. "'I never, never, never was so used,' she sobbed. "'There never was anything so harsh and unjustifiable, so disgracefully violent and cruel. Dear, kind, quiet little Amy, too, what would she feel if she could know that she had been innocently the means of exposing me to such treatment? But I'll never tell her. No, good darling, I'll never tell her. This helped Mr. Dorrit to break his silence. My dear, said he, I ah, approve of your resolution. It will be ah, um, much better not to speak of this to Amy. It might, mm, it uh, might distress her. Ah, no doubt it would distress her greatly. It is considerate and right to avoid doing so. We will, ah, keep this to ourselves. But the cruelty of uncle, cried Miss Fanny. Oh, I never can forgive the wanton cruelty of uncle. My dear, said Mr. Dorrit, recovering his tone, 
though he remained unusually pale, "'I must request you not to say so. You must remember that your uncle is, ah, uh, not what he formerly was. You must remember that your uncle's state requires, hmm, great forbearance from us. Great forbearance.' "'I am sure.' cried Fanny piteously. "'It is only charitable to suppose that there must be something wrong in him somewhere, or he never could have so attacked me, of all the people in the world.' "'Fanny,' returned Mr. Dorrit, in a deeply fraternal tone, "'you know, with his innumerable good points, what a hmm, wreck your uncle is, and I entreat you, by the fondness that I have for him, and by the fidelity that you know I have always shown him, to, ah, to draw your own conclusions, and to spare my brotherly feelings." This ended the scene, Edward Dorrit Esquire saying nothing throughout, but looking, to the last, perplexed and doubtful. Miss Fanny awakened much affectionate uneasiness in her sister's mind that day, by passing the greater part of it in violent fits of embracing her, and in alternately giving her brooches, and wishing herself dead. End of Book Two, Chapter Five Book Two, Chapter Six of Little Dorrit this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Six, Something Right Somewhere. To be in the halting state of Mr. Henry Gowan, to have left one of two powers in disgust, to want the necessary qualifications for finding promotion with another, and to be loitering moodily about on neutral ground, cursing both, is to be in a situation unwholesome for the mind, which time is not likely to improve. The worst class of some worked in the everyday world is ciphered by the diseased arithmeticians who are always in the rule of subtraction, as to the merits and successes of others, and never in addition as to their own. The habit, too, of seeking some sort of recompense in the discontented boast of being disappointed, is a habit fraught with degeneracy. A certain idle carelessness and recklessness of consistency soon comes of it. To bring deserving things down, by setting undeserving things up, is one of its perverted delights, and there is no playing fast and loose with the truth in any game without growing the worse for it. In his expressed opinions of all performances in the art of painting that were completely destitute of merit, Gowan was the most liberal fellow on earth. He would declare such a man to have more power in his little finger, provided he had none, than such another had, provided he had much, in his whole mind and body. If the objection were taken that the thing commended was trash, he would reply, on behalf of his art, "'My good fellow, what do we all turn out but trash? I turn out nothing else, and I make you a present of the confession.' To make a vaunt of being poor was another of the incidents of his splenetic state, though this may have had the design in it of showing that he ought to be rich, just as he would publicly laud and decry the barnacles, lest it should be forgotten that he belonged to the family. Howbeit, 
these two subjects were very often on his lips, and he managed them so well that he might have praised himself by the month together, and not have made himself out half so important a man as he did by his light disparagement of his claims on anybody's consideration. Out of this same airy talk of his, it always soon came to be understood, wherever he and his wife went, that he had married against the wishes of his exalted relations, and had had much ado to prevail on them to countenance her. He never made the representation, on the contrary, seemed to laugh the idea to scorn, but it did happen that, with all his pains to depreciate himself, he was always in the superior position. From the days of their honeymoon, Minnie Gowan felt sensible of being usually regarded as the wife of a man who had made a descent in marrying her, but whose chivalrous love for her had cancelled that inequality. To Venice they had been accompanied by Monsieur Blandois of Paris, and at Venice Monsieur Blandois of Paris was very much in the society of Gowan. When they had first met this gallant gentleman at Geneva, Gowan had been undecided whether to kick him or encourage him and had remained for about four-and-twenty hours, so troubled to settle the point to his satisfaction, that he had thought of tossing up a five-franc piece on the terms, tails, kick, heads, and courage, and abiding by the voice of the oracle. It chanced, however, that his wife expressed a dislike to the engaging Blandois, and that the balance of feeling in the hotel was against him. Upon it Gowan resolved to encourage him. Why this perversity, if it were not in a generous fit, which it was not? Why should Gowan, very much the superior of Blandois of Paris, and very well able to pull that prepossessing gentleman to pieces and find out the stuff he was made of, take up with such a man? In the first place, he opposed the first separate wish he observed in his wife, because her father had paid his debts, and it was desirable to take an early opportunity of asserting his independence. In the second place, he opposed the prevalent feeling, because, with many capacities of being otherwise, he was an ill-conditioned man. He found a pleasure in declaring that a courtier, with the refined manners of Blandois, ought to rise to the greatest distinction in any polished country. He found a pleasure in setting up Blandois as the type of elegance, and making him a satire upon others who piqued themselves on personal graces. He seriously protested that the bow of Blandois was perfect, that the address of Blandois was irresistible, and that the picturesque ease of Blandois would be cheaply purchased, if it were not a gift and unpurchasable, for a hundred thousand francs. That exaggeration in the manner of the man, which has been noticed as appertaining to him and to every such man, whatever his original breeding, as certainly as the sun belongs to this system, was acceptable to Gowan as a caricature which he found it a humorous resource to have at hand, for the ridiculing of numbers of people who necessarily did more or less of what Blandois overdid. Thus he had taken up with him, and thus, negligently strengthening these inclinations with habit, and idly deriving some amusement from his talk, he had glided into a way of having him for a companion. This, though he supposed him to live by his wits at play-tables and the like, though he suspected him to be a coward, while he himself was daring and courageous, though he thoroughly knew him to be disliked by Minnie, and though he cared so little for him, after all, that if he had given her any tangible personal cause to regard him with aversion, he would have had no compunction whatever in flinging him out at the highest window in Venice, into the deepest water of the city. Little Dorrit, 
would have been glad to make her visit to Mrs. Gowan alone, but as Fanny, who had not yet recovered from her uncle's protest, though it was four-and-twenty hours of age, pressingly offered her company, the two sisters stepped together into one of the gondolas under Mr. Dorrit's window, and, with the courier in attendance, were taken in high state to Mrs. Gowan's lodging. In truth, their state was rather too high for the lodging, which was, as Fanny complained, fearfully out of the way, and which took them through a complexity of narrow streets of water, which the same lady disparaged as mere ditches. The house, on a little desert island, looked as if it had broken away from somewhere else, and had floated by chance into its present anchorage, in company with the vine, almost as much in want of training as the poor wretches who were lying under its leaves. The features of the surrounding picture were a church with hoarding and scaffolding about it, which had been under suppositious repair so long that the means of repair looked a hundred years old, and had themselves fallen into decay. A quantity of washed linen, spread to dry in the sun, a number of houses at odds with one another, and grotesquely out of the perpendicular, like rotten pre-Adamite cheese, cut into fantastic shapes and full of mites, and a feverish bewilderment of windows, with their lattice-blinds all hanging askew, and something draggled and dirty dangling out of most of them. On the first floor of the house was a bank, a surprising experience for any gentleman of commercial pursuits bringing laws for all mankind from a British city, where two spare clerks, like dried dragoons, in green velvet caps adorned with golden tassels, stood, bearded, behind a small counter in a small room, containing no other visible objects than an empty iron safe with the door open, a jug of water, and a papering of garland of roses, but who, on lawful requisition, by merely dipping their hands out of sight, could produce exhaustless mounds of five-franc pieces. Below the bank was a suite of three or four rooms, with barred windows, which had the appearance of a jail for criminal rats. Above the bank was Mrs. Gowan's residence. Notwithstanding that its walls were blotched, as if missionary maps were bursting out of them to impart geographical knowledge, notwithstanding that its weird furniture was forlornly faded and musty, and that the prevailing Venetian odour of bilge-water and an ebb-tide on a weedy shore was very strong, the place was better within than it promised. The door was opened by a smiling man, like a reformed assassin, a temporary servant, who ushered them into the room where Mrs. Gowan sat, with the announcement that two beautiful English ladies were come to see the mistress. Mrs. Gowan, who was engaged in needlework, put her work aside in a covered basket, and rose a little hurriedly. Miss Fanny was excessively courteous to her, and said the usual nothings with the skill of a veteran. "'Papa was extremely sorry,' proceeded Fanny, "'to be engaged to-day. He is so much engaged here, our acquaintance being so wretchedly large, and particularly requested me to bring his card for Mr. Gowan, that I may be sure to acquit myself of a commission which he impressed upon me at least a dozen times, allow me to relieve my conscience by placing it on the table at once.' Which she did, with veteran ease. "'We have been—' said Fanny, charmed to understand that you know the Myrtles. We hope it may be another means of bringing us together. "'They are friends,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'of Mr. Gowan's family. I have not yet had the pleasure of a personal introduction to Mrs. Myrtle, but I suppose I shall be presented to her at Rome.' "'Indeed,' 
returned Fanny, with an appearance of amiably quenching her own superiority. "'I think you'll like her.' "'You know her very well.' "'Why, you see,' said Fanny, with the frank action of her pretty shoulders, "'in London one knows every one. We met her on our way here, and, to say the truth, papa was at first rather cross with her for taking one of the rooms that our people had ordered for us. However, of course, that soon blew over.' and we were all good friends again." Although the visit had as yet given Little Dorrit no opportunity of conversing with Mrs. Gowan, there was a silent understanding between them, which did as well. She looked at Mrs. Gowan with keen and unabated interest. The sound of her voice was thrilling to her. Nothing that was near her, or about her, or at all concerned her, escaped Little Dorrit. She was quicker to perceive the slightest matter here than in any other case but one. "'You have been quite well,' she now said, "'since that night.' "'Quite, my dear. And you?' "'Oh, I'm always well,' said Little Dorrit timidly. "'I—yes, thank you.' There was no reason for her faltering and breaking off, other than that Mrs. Gowan had touched her hand in speaking to her, and their looks had met. Something thoughtfully apprehensive in the large soft eyes had checked Little Dorrit in an instant. "'You don't know that you are a favourite of my husband's, and that I am almost bound to be jealous of you,' said Mrs. Gowan. Little Dorrit, blushing, shook her head. "'He will tell you, if he tells you what he tells me, that you are quieter and quicker of resource than any one he ever saw.' "'He speaks far too well of me,' said Little Dorrit. "'I doubt that. But I don't at all doubt that I must tell him you are here.' I should never be forgiven, if I were to let you and Miss Dorrit go, without doing so. May I? You can excuse the disorder and discomfort of a painter's studio." The inquiries were addressed to Miss Fanny, who graciously replied that she would be beyond anything interested and enchanted. Mrs. Gowan went to a door, looked in beyond it, and came back. "'Do Henry the favour to come in,' said she. "'I knew he would be pleased.' The first object that confronted Little Dorrit, entering first, was Blandois of Paris, in a great cloak and a furtive slouched hat, standing on a throne platform in a corner, as he had stood on the great St. Bernard, when the warning arms seemed to be all pointing up at him. She recoiled from this figure, as it smiled at her. "'Don't be alarmed,' said Gowan, coming from his easel behind the door. "'It's only Blandois.' He is doing duty as a model to-day. I am making a study of him. It saves me money to turn him to some use. We poor painters have none to spare." Blandois of Paris pulled off his slouched hat, and saluted the ladies without coming out of his corner. "'A thousand pardons,' said he, "'but the professor here is so inexorable with me that I am afraid to stir.' "'Don't stir, then.' said Gowan coolly, as the sisters approached the easel. "'Let the ladies at least see the original of the daub, that they may know what it's meant for. There he stands, you see. A bravo waiting for his prey, a distinguished noble waiting to save his country, the common enemy waiting to do somebody a bad turn, an angelic messenger waiting to do somebody a good turn. Whatever you think he looks most like.' "'Say, Professore mio!' A poor gentleman waiting to do homage 
to elegance and beauty,' remarked Blandois. "'Or say, cattivo soggetto mio,' returned Gowan, touching the painted face with his brush in the part where the real face had moved. "'Ah, uh, murderer, after the fact. Show that white hand of yours, Blandois. Put it outside the cloak. Keep it still.' Blandois's hand was unsteady, but he laughed, and that would naturally shake it. "'He was formerly in some scuffle with another murderer, or with a victim, you observe,' said Gowan, putting in the markings of the hand, with a quick, impatient, unskilful touch. "'And these are the tokens of it. Outside the cloak, man. Corpa di San Marco. What are you thinking of?' Blandois of Paris shook with a laugh again, so that his hand shook more. Now he raised it to twist his moustache, which had a damp appearance, and now he stood in the required position, with a little new swagger. His face was so directed in reference to the spot where Little Dorrit stood by the easel, that throughout he looked at her. Once attracted by his peculiar eyes, she could not remove her own, and they had looked at each other all the time. She trembled now. Gowan, feeling it, and supposing her to be alarmed by the large dog beside him, whose head she caressed in her hand, and who had just uttered a low growl, glanced at her to say, "'He won't hurt you, Miss Dorrit.' "'I'm not afraid of him,' she returned in the same breath. "'But will you look at him?' In a moment Gowan had thrown down his brush, and seized the dog with both hands by the collar. "'Blandois! How can you be such a fool as to provoke him?' "'By heaven, and the other place, too! He'll tear you to bits! Lie down, lion! Do you hear my voice, you rebel?' The great dog, regardless of being half-choked by his collar, was obdurately pulling with his dead weight against his master, resolved to get across the room. He had been crouching for a spring at the moment when his master caught him. "'Lion! Lion!' He was up on his hind legs, and it was a wrestle between master and dog. "'Get back!' "'Down, lion! Get out of his sight, Blandois! What devil have you conjured into the dog?' "'I have done nothing to him. Get out of his sight, or I can't hold the wild beast. Get out of the room, by my soul, he'll kill you!' The dog, with a ferocious bark, made one other struggle as Blandois vanished. Then, in the moment of the dog's submission, the master, little less angry than the dog, felled him with a blow on the head, and standing over him, struck him many times, severely with the heel of his boot, so that his mouth was presently bloody. "'Now, get you into that corner and lie down,' said Gowan, "'or I'll take you out and shoot you.' Lion did as he was ordered, and lay down licking his mouth and chest. Lion's master stopped for a moment to take breath, and then, recovering his usual coolness of manner, turned to speak to his frightened wife and her visitors. Probably the whole occurrence had not occupied two minutes. "'Come, come, Minnie. You know he is always good-humoured and tractable. Blandois must have irritated him, made faces at him. A dog has his likings and dislikings, and Blandois is no great favourite of his. But I am sure you will give him a character, Minnie, for never having been like this before.' Minnie was too much disturbed to say anything connected in reply. Little Dorrit was already occupied in soothing her. Fanny, who had cried out twice or thrice, held Gowan's arm for protection. Lion, deeply ashamed of having caused them this alarm, came trailing himself along the ground to the feet of his mistress. "'You furious brute!' said Gowan, 
striking him with his foot again. "'You shall do penance for this.' And he struck him again, and yet again. "'Oh, pray, don't punish him any more,' cried Little Dorrit. "'Don't hurt him. See how gentle he is.' At her entreaty, Gowan spared him, and he deserved her intercession, for truly he was as submissive and as sorry and as wretched as a dog could be. It was not easy to recover this shock and make the visit unrestrained, even though Fanny had not been, under the best of circumstances, the least trifle in the way. In such further communication as passed among them before the sisters took their departure, Little Dorrit fancied it was revealed to her that Mr. Gowan treated his wife, even in his very fondness, too much like a beautiful child. He seemed so unsuspicious of the depths of feeling which she knew must lie below that surface, that she doubted if there could be any such depths in himself. She wondered whether his want of earnestness might be the natural result of his want of such qualities, and whether it was with people as with ships, that in two shallow and rocky waters their anchors had no hold, and they drifted anywhere. He attended them down the stairs, jocosely apologising for the poor quarters to which such poor fellows as himself were limited, and remarking that when the high and mighty barnacles, his relatives, who would be dreadfully ashamed of them, presented him with better, he would live in better to oblige them. At the water's edge they were saluted by Blandois, who looked white enough after his late adventure, but who made very light of it notwithstanding, laughing at the mention of Lion. Leaving the two together under the scrap of vine upon the causeway, Gowan idly scattering the leaves from it into the water, and Blandois lighting a cigarette, the sisters were paddled away in state as they had come. They had not glided on for many minutes, when Little Dorrit became aware that Fanny was more showy in manner than the occasion appeared to require, and, looking about for the cause through the window and through the open door, saw another gondola, evidently, in waiting on them. As this gondola attended their progress in various artful ways, sometimes shooting on ahead, and stopping to let them pass, sometimes, when the way was broad enough, skimming along side by side with them, and sometimes following close astern. And as Fanny gradually made no disguise that she was playing off graces upon somebody within it, of whom she had at the same time feigned to be unconscious, Little Dorrit at length asked who it was. To which Fanny made the short answer, "'That Gaby.' "'Who?' said Little Dorrit. "'My dear child,' returned Fanny, in a tone suggesting that before her uncle's protest she might have said, "'You little fool,' instead, "'How slow you are, young sparkler!' She lowered the window on her side, and, leaning back and resting her elbow on it negligently, fanned herself with a rich Spanish fan of black and gold. The attendant gondola, having skimmed forward again with some swift trace of an eye in the window, Fanny laughed coquettishly, and said, "'Did you ever see such a fool, my love?' "'Do you think he means to follow you all the way?' asked Little Dorrit. "'My precious child,' returned Fanny, "'I can't possibly answer for what an idiot in a state of desperation may do, but I should think it highly probable. It's not such an enormous distance. All Venice would scarcely be that, I imagine, if he's dying for a glimpse of me.' "'And is he?' asked Little Dorrit, in perfect simplicity. "'Well, my love, that really is an awkward question for me to answer,' said her sister. "'I believe he is. You had better ask Edward. He tells Edward he is, I believe.' 
I understand he makes a perfect spectacle of himself at the casino, and that sort of places, by going on about me. But you'd better ask Edward if you want to know.' "'I wonder he doesn't call,' said Little Dorrit, after thinking a moment. "'My dear Amy, your wonder will soon cease, if I am rightly informed. I should not be at all surprised if he called to-day. The creature has only been waiting to get his courage up, I suspect.' "'Will you see him?' "'Indeed, my darling,' said Fanny, "'that's just as it may happen. Here he is again. Look at him. Oh, you simpleton!' Mr. Sparkler had, undeniably, a weak appearance, with his eye in the window like a knot in the glass, and no reason on earth for stopping his bark suddenly, except the real reason. "'When you ask me if I will see him, dear,' said Fanny, almost as well composed in the graceful indifference of her attitude as Mrs. Merdle herself. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean,' said Little Dorrit, "'I think I rather mean what do you mean, dear Fanny?' Fanny laughed again, in a manner at once condescending, arch, and affable, and said, putting her arm round her sister in a playfully affectionate way, "'Now tell me, my little pet,' "'When we saw that woman at Martigny, how did you think she carried it off? "'Did you see what she decided on in a moment?' "'No, Fanny. Then I'll tell you, Amy. "'She settled with herself. "'Now I'll never refer to that meeting under such different circumstances, "'and I'll never pretend to have any idea that these are the same girls. "'That's her way out of a difficulty. "'What did I tell you when we came away from Harley Street that time?' She is as insolent and false as any woman in the world. But in the first capacity, my love, she may find people who can match her." A significant turn of the Spanish fan towards Fanny's bosom indicated with great expression where one of these people was to be found. "'Not only that,' pursued Fanny, "'but she gives the same charge to young Sparkler, and doesn't let him come after me until she has got it thoroughly into his most ridiculous of all ridiculous noddles, for one really can't call it a head, that he is to pretend to have been first struck with me in that inn-yard. "'Why?' asked Little Dorrit. "'Why, good gracious, my love,' again very much in the tone of you stupid little creature, "'how can you ask? Don't you see that I may have become a rather desirable match for a noddle?' and don't you see that she puts the deception upon us and makes a pretence while she shifts it from her own shoulders very good shoulders they are too i must say observed miss fanny glancing complacently at herself of considering our feelings but we can always go back to the plain truth yes but if you please we won't retorted fanny no i'm not going to have that done amy the pretext is none of mine, it's hers, and she shall have enough of it." In the triumphant exultation of her feelings, Miss Fanny, using her Spanish fan with one hand, squeezed her sister's waist with the other, as if she were crushing Mrs. Merdle. "'No,' repeated Fanny, "'she shall find me go her way. She took it, and I'll follow it, and, with the blessing of fate and fortune, I'll go on improving that woman's acquaintance until I have given her maid, before her eyes, things from my dressmaker's ten times as handsome and expensive as she once gave me from hers." 
Little Dorrit was silent, sensible that she was not to be heard on any question affecting the family dignity, and unwilling to lose to no purpose her sister's newly and unexpectedly restored favour. She could not concur, but she was silent. Fanny well knew what she was thinking of, so well, that she soon asked her. Her reply was, "'Do you mean to encourage Mr. Sparkler, Fanny?' "'Encourage him, my dear?' said her sister, smiling contemptuously. "'That depends upon what you call encourage. No, I don't mean to encourage him, but I'll make a slave of him.' Little Dorrit glanced seriously and doubtfully in her face. But Fanny was not to be so brought to a check. She furled her fan of black and gold, and used it to tap her sister's nose, with the air of a proud beauty and a great spirit, who toyed with and playfully instructed a homely companion. "'I shall make him fetch and carry, my dear, and I shall make him subject to me. And if I don't make his mother subject to me, too, it shall not be my fault.' "'Do you think, dear Fanny—don't be offended, we are so comfortable together now—that you can quite see the end of that course?' "'I can't say I have so much as looked for it yet, my dear,' answered Fanny, with supreme indifference. "'All in good time.' Such are my intentions, and really they have taken me so long to develop, that here we are at home, and young Sparkler at the door, inquiring who is within, by the merest accident, of course." In effect, the swain was standing up in his gondola, card-case in hand, affecting to put the question to a servant. This conjunction of circumstances led to his immediately afterwards presenting himself before the young ladies in a posture which in ancient times would not have been considered one of favourable augury for his suit, since the gondoliers of the young ladies, having been put to some inconvenience by the chase, so neatly brought their own boat in the gentlest collision with the bark of Mr. Sparkler as to tip that gentleman over like a larger species of ninepin and cause him to exhibit the soles of his shoes to the object of his dearest wishes, while the nobler portions of his anatomy struggled at the bottom of his boat in the arms of one of his men. However, as Miss Fanny called out with much concern, was the gentleman hurt, Mr. Sparkler rose, more restored than might have been expected, and stammered for himself with blushes, "'No, uh, not at all so.' Miss Fanny had no recollection of having ever seen him before, and was passing on, with a distant inclination of her head, when he announced himself by name. Even then she was in a difficulty from being unable to call it to mind, until he explained that he had had the honour of seeing her at Martigny. Then she remembered him, and hoped his lady mother was well. "'Thank you.' stammered Mr. Sparkler. "'She is uh, uncommonly well, at least poorly.' "'In Venice,' said Miss Fanny. "'In Rome,' Mr. Sparkler answered. "'I am here by myself, myself. I came to call upon Mr. Edward Dorrit, myself. Indeed, upon Mr. Dorrit likewise, in fact, upon the whole family.' Turning graciously to the attendants, Miss Fanny inquired whether her papa or brother was within. The reply being that they were both within, Mr. Sparkler humbly offered his arm. Miss Fanny, accepting it, was squired up the great staircase by Mr. Sparkler, who, if he still believed, which there is not any reason to doubt, that she had no nonsense about her, 
rather deceived himself. Arrived in a mouldering reception-room, where the faded hangings of a sad sea-green had worn and withered until they looked as if they might have claimed kindred with the waifs of seaweed drifting under the windows, or clinging to the walls and weeping for their imprisoned relations. Miss Fanny dispatched emissaries for her father and brother, pending whose appearance she showed to great advantage on a sofa, completing Mr. Sparkler's conquest with some remarks about Dante, known to that gentleman as an eccentric man in the nature of an old file, who used to put leaves round his head, and sit upon a stool for some unaccountable purpose, outside the cathedral at Florence. Mr. Dorrit welcomed the visitor with the highest urbanity, and most courtly manners. He inquired particularly after Mrs. Myrtle. He inquired particularly after Mr. Myrtle. Mr. Sparkler said, or rather twitched out of himself in small pieces by the shirt-collar, that Mrs. Myrtle, having completely used up her place in the country, and also her house at Brighton, and being, of course, unable, don't you see, to remain in London where there wasn't a soul there, and not feeling herself of this year quite up to visiting about at people's places, had resolved to have a touch at Rome, where a woman like herself, with a proverbial fine appearance, and with no nonsense about her, couldn't fail to be a great acquisition. As to Mr. Myrtle, he was so much wanted by the men in the city, and the rest of those places, and was such a deuced extraordinary phenomenon in buying and banking, and that, that Mr. Sparkler doubted if the monetary system of the country would be able to spare him, though that his work was occasionally one too many for him, and that he would be all the better for a temporary shy at an entirely new scene and climate, Mr. Sparkler did not conceal. As to himself, Mr. Sparkler conveyed to the Dorrit family that he was going, on rather particular business, wherever they were going. This immense conversational achievement required time, but was effected. Being effected, Mr. Dorrit expressed his hope that Mr. Sparkler would shortly dine with them. Mr. Sparkler received the idea so kindly that Mr. Dorrit asked what he was going to do that day, for instance. As he was going to do nothing that day, his usual occupation, and one for which he was particularly qualified, he was secured without postponement being further bound over to accompany the ladies to the opera in the evening. At dinner-time Mr. Sparkler rose out of the sea, like Venus's son taking after his mother, and made a splendid appearance ascending the great staircase. If Fanny had been charming in the morning, she was now thrice charming, very becomingly dressed in her most suitable colours, and with an air of negligence about her that doubled Mr. Sparkler's fetters and riveted them. "'I hear you are acquainted, Mr. Sparkler,' said his host at dinner, "'with, uh, Mr. Gowan, Mr. Henry Gowan.' "'Perfectly, sir,' returned Mr. Sparkler. "'His mother and my mother are cronies, in fact.' "'If I had thought of it, Amy,' said Mr. Dorrit, with a patronage as magnificent as that of Lord Decimus himself, "'you should have dispatched a note to them, asking them to dine to-day. Some of our people could have uh, fetched them and taken them home. We could have spared a um, gondola for that purpose. I am sorry to have forgotten this. Pray remind me of them to-morrow.' Little Dorrit was not without doubts how Mr. Henry Gowan might take their patronage, which he promised not to fail in the reminder. 
pray does mr henry gowan paint uh, portraits inquired mr dorrit mr sparkler opined that he painted anything if he could get the job he has no particular walk said mr dorrit mr sparkler stimulated by love to brilliancy replied that for a particular walk a man ought to have a particular pair of shoes as for example shooting shooting shoes cricket cricket shoes whereas he believed that henry gowan had no particular pair of shoes no speciality said mr dorrit this being a very long word for mr sparkler and his mind being exhausted by his late effort he replied no thank you i seldom take it well said mr dorrit it would be very agreeable to me to present a gentleman so connected with some ha uh, testimonial of my desire to further his interests and develop the hmm, germs of his genius i think i must engage mr gowan to paint my picture if the result should be ha uh, mutually satisfactory i might afterwards engage him to try his hand upon my family the exquisitely bold and original thought presented itself to mr sparkler that there was an opening here for saying there were some of the family emphasizing some in a marked manner to whom no painter could render justice but for want of a form of words in which to express the idea it returned to the skies this was the more to be regretted as miss fanny greatly applauded the notion of the portrait and urged her papa to act upon it she surmised she said that mr gowan had lost better and higher opportunities by marrying his pretty wife and love in a cottage painting pictures for dinner was so delightfully interesting that she begged her papa to give him the commission whether he could paint a likeness or not though indeed both she and amy knew he could from having seen a speaking likeness on his easel that day and having had the opportunity of comparing it with the original these remarks made mr sparkler as perhaps they were intended to do nearly distracted for while on the one hand they expressed miss fanny's susceptibility of the tender passion she herself showed such an innocent unconsciousness of his admiration that his eyes goggled in his head with jealousy of an unknown rival descending into the sea again after dinner and ascending out of it at the opera staircase preceded by one of their gondoliers like an attendant merman with a great linen lantern they entered their box and mr sparkler entered on an evening of agony the theatre being dark and the box light several visitors lounged in during the representation in whom fanny was so interested and in conversation with whom she fell into such charming attitudes as she had little confidences with them and little disputes concerning the identity of people in distant boxes that the wretched sparkler hated all mankind but he had two consolations at the close of the performance she gave him her fan to hold while she adjusted her cloak and it was his blessed privilege to give her his arm downstairs again these crumbs of encouragement mr sparkler thought would just keep him going and it is not impossible that miss dorrit thought so too the merman with his light was ready at the box door and other mermen with other lights were ready at many of the doors the dorrit merman held his lantern low to show the steps and mr sparkler put on another heavy set of fetters over his former set 
as he watched her radiant feet twinkling down the stairs beside him. Among the loiterers here was Blandois of Paris. He spoke, and moved forward beside Fanny. Little Dorrit was in front with her brother and Mrs. General. Mr. Dorrit had remained at home. But on the brink of the quay they all came together. She started again to find Blandois close to her, handing Fanny into the boat. "'Gowan has had a loss,' he said, "'since he was made happy to-day by a visit from fair ladies.' "'A loss,' repeated Fanny, relinquished by the bereaved sparkler, and taking her seat. "'A loss,' said Blandois. "'His dog, Lion.' Little Dorrit's hand was in his as he spoke. "'He is dead,' said Blandois. "'Dead?' echoed Little Dorrit. "'That noble dog!' "'Faith, dear ladies,' said Blandois, smiling and shrugging his shoulders, "'somebody has poisoned that noble dog. He is as dead as the dodges.' End of Book Two, Chapter Six Book Two, Chapter Seven of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Seven, mostly prunes and prism. Mrs. General, always on her coach box, keeping the proprieties well together, took pains to form a surface on her very dear young friend, and Mrs. General's very dear young friend tried hard to receive it. Hard as she had tried in her laborious life to attain many ends, she had never tried harder than she did now to be varnished by Mrs. General. It made her anxious and ill at ease to be operated upon by that smoothing hand, it is true, but she submitted herself to the family want in its greatness, as she had submitted herself to the family want in its littleness, and yielded to her own inclinations in this thing no more than she had yielded to her hunger itself, in the days when she had saved her dinner that her father might have his supper. One comfort that she had under the ordeal by General was more sustaining to her and made her more grateful than to a less devoted and affectionate spirit. Not habituated to her struggles and sacrifices, might appear quite reasonable, and indeed it may often be observed in life that spirits, like little Dorrit, do not appear to reason half as carefully as the folks who get the better of them. The continued kindness of her sister was this comfort to little Dorrit. It was nothing to her that the kindness took the form of tolerant patronage, she was used to that. It was nothing to her that it kept her in a tributary position, and showed her in attendance on the flaming car, in which Miss Fanny sat on an elevated seat, exacting homage, she sought no better place. Always admiring Fanny's beauty, and grace, and readiness, and not now asking herself how much of her disposition to be strongly attached to Fanny was due to her own heart, and how much to Fanny's, she gave her all the sisterly fondness her great heart contained. The wholesale amount of prunes and prism, which Mrs. General infused into the family life, combined with the perpetual plunges made by Fanny into society, left but a very small residue of any natural deposit at the bottom of the mixture. This rendered confidences with Fanny doubly precious to Little Dorrit, 
and heightened the relief they afforded her. "'Amy,' said Fanny to her one night, when they were alone, after a day so tiring that little Dorrit was quite worn out, though Fanny would have taken another dip into society with the greatest pleasure in life. "'I am going to put something into your little head. You won't guess what it is, I suspect.' "'I don't think that's likely, dear,' said little Dorrit. "'Come, I'll give you a clue, child,' said Fanny. "'Mrs. General.' Prunes and prism, in a thousand combinations, having been wearily in the ascendant all day, everything having been surface and varnish and show without substance, little Dorrit looked as if she had hoped that Mrs. General was safely tucked up in bed for some hours. "'Now can you guess, Amy?' said Fanny. "'No, dear, unless I have done anything,' said Little Dorrit, rather alarmed, and meaning anything calculated to crack varnish and ruffle surface. Fanny was so very much amused by the misgiving, that she took up her favourite fan, being then seated at her dressing-table, with her armoury of cruel instruments about her, most of them reeking from the heart of Sparkler, and tapped her sister frequently on the nose with it, laughing all the time. "'Oh, our Amy, our Amy,' said Fanny. "'What a timid little goose our Amy is! "'But this is nothing to laugh at. "'On the contrary, I'm very cross, my dear. "'As it is not with me, Fanny, I don't mind,' returned her sister, smiling. "'Ah, but I do mind,' said Fanny. "'And so will you, Pet, when I enlighten you. "'Amy, has it never struck you?' that somebody is monstrously polite to Mrs. General?' "'Everybody is polite to Mrs. General,' said Little Dorrit, "'because—because she freezes them into it,' interrupted Fanny. "'I don't mean that. Quite different from that. Come, has it never struck you, Amy, that Pa is monstrously polite to Mrs. General?' Amy, murmuring, "'No,' looked quite confounded. "'No!' "'I dare say not. But he is,' said Fanny. "'He is, Amy. And remember my words. Mrs. General has designs on Pa.' "'Dear Fanny, do you think it possible that Mrs. General has designs on any one?' "'Do I think it possible?' returned Fanny. "'My love, I know it. I tell you she has designs on Pa. And more than that, I tell you Pa considered her such a wonder—' such a paragon of accomplishment and such an acquisition to our family that he is ready to get himself into a state of perfect infatuation with her at any moment and that opens a pretty picture of things i hope think of me with mrs general for a mamma little dorrit did not reply think of me with mrs general for a mamma but she looked anxious and seriously inquired what had led fanny to these conclusions "'Lord, my darling,' said Fanny tartly, "'you might as well ask me how I know when a man is struck with myself. But of course I do know. It happens pretty often. But I always know it. I know this in much the same way, I suppose. At all events, I know it.' "'You never heard Papa say anything?' "'Say anything?' repeated Fanny. "'My dearest darling girl, what necessity has he had?' yet a while, to say anything. "'And you have never heard Mrs. General say anything?' "'My goodness me, Amy,' returned Fanny, "'is she the sort of woman to say anything? 
isn't it perfectly plain and clear that she has nothing to do at present but to hold herself upright keep her aggravating gloves on and go sweeping about say anything if she had the ace of trumps in her hand at whist she wouldn't say anything child it would come out when she played it at least you may be mistaken fanny now, now may you not oh yes i may be said fanny but i'm not however i am glad you can contemplate such an escape my dear and i am glad that you can take this for the present with sufficient coolness to think of such a chance it makes me hope that you may be able to bear the connection i should not be able to bear it and i should not try i'd marry young sparkler first oh you would never marry him fanny under any circumstances upon my word my dear rejoined that young lady with exceeding indifference i wouldn't positively answer even for that there's no knowing what might happen especially as i should have many opportunities afterwards of treating that woman his mother in her own style which i most decidedly should not be slow to avail myself of amy no more passed between the sisters then but what had passed gave the two subjects of mrs general and mr sparkler great prominence in little dorrit's mind and thenceforth she thought very much of both mrs general having long ago formed her own surface to such perfection that it hid whatever was below it if anything no observation was to be made in that quarter mr dorrit was undeniably very polite to her and had a high opinion of her but fanny impetuous at most times might easily be wrong for all that whereas the sparkler question was on the different footing than any one could see what was going on there and little dorrit saw it and pondered on it with many doubts and wonderings the devotion of mr sparkler was only to be equalled by the caprice and cruelty of his enslaver sometimes she would prefer him to such distinction of notice that he would chuckle aloud with joy next day or next hour she would overlook him so completely and drop him into such an abyss of obscurity that he would groan under a weak pretence of coughing the constancy of his attendance never touched fanny though he was so inseparable from edward that when that gentleman wished for a change of society he was under the irksome necessity of gliding out like a conspirator in disguised boats and by secret doors and backways though he was so solicitous to know how mr dorrit was that he called every other day to inquire as if mr dorrit were the prey of an intermittent fever though he was so constantly being paddled up and down before the principal windows that he might have been supposed to have made a wager for a large stake to be paddled a thousand miles in a thousand hours though whenever the gondola of his mistress left the gate the gondola of mr sparkler shot out from some watery ambush and gave chase as if she were a fair smuggler and he a custom-house officer it was probably owing to this fortification of the natural strength of his constitution with so much exposure to the air and the salt sea that mr sparkler did not pine outwardly but whatever the cause he was so far from having any prospect of moving his mistress by a languishing state of health that he grew bluffer every day and that peculiarity in his appearance of seeing rather a swelled boy than a young man became developed to an extraordinary degree of ruddy puffiness blandois calling to pay his respects mr dorrit received him with affability as the friend of mr gowan and mentioned to him his idea of commissioning mr gowan to transmit him to posterity 
Blandois, highly extolling it, it occurred to Mr. Dorrit that it might be agreeable to Blandois to communicate to his friend the great opportunity reserved for him. Blandois accepted the commission with his own free elegance of manner, and swore he would discharge it before he was an hour older. On his imparting the news to Gowan, that master gave Mr. Dorrit to the devil, with great liberality, some round dozen of times, for he resented patronage almost as much as he resented the want of it, and was inclined to quarrel with his friend for bringing him the message. "'It may be a defect in my mental vision, Blandois,' said he, "'but I may die if I see what you have to do with this.' "'Death of my life,' replied Blandois, "'nor I neither.' except that I thought I was serving my friend. "'By putting an upstart's hire in his pocket,' said Gowan, frowning, "'do you mean that? Tell your other friend to get his head painted for the sign of some public house, and to get it done by a sign-painter. Who am I, and who is he?' "'Professore,' returned the ambassador, "'and who is Blandois?' Without appearing at all interested in the latter question, Gowan angrily whistled Mr. Dorrit away. But next day he resumed the subject by saying in his off-hand manner, and with a slighting laugh, "'Well, Blandois, when shall we go to this Messinus of yours? We journeymen must take jobs when we can get them. When shall we go and look after this job?' "'When you will,' said the injured Blandois, "'as you please. What have I to do with it? What is it to me?' "'I can tell you what it is to me,' said Gowan. "'Bread and cheese one must eat. So come along, my Blandois.' Mr. Dorrit received them in the presence of his daughters and of Mr. Sparkler, who happened, by some surprising accident, to be calling there. "'How are you, Sparkler?' said Gowan carelessly. "'When you have to live by your mother wit, old boy, I hope you may get on better than I do.' Mr. Dorrit then mentioned his proposal. "'Sir,' said Gowan, laughing, after receiving it gracefully enough, "'I am new to the trade, and not expert at its mysteries. I believe I ought to look at you in various lights, tell you you are a capital subject, and consider when I shall be sufficiently disengaged to devote myself with a necessary enthusiasm to the fine picture I mean to make of you. I assure you.' And he laughed again. I feel quite a traitor in the camp of those dear, gifted, good, noble fellows, my brother artists, by not doing the hocus-pocus better. But I have not been brought up to it, and it's too late to learn it. Now, the fact is, I am a very bad painter, but not much worse in the generality. If you are going to throw away a hundred guineas or so, I am as poor as a poor relation of great people usually is, and I shall be very much obliged to you if you will throw them away upon me. <laughs> I'll do the best I can for the money, and if the best should be bad, why, even then, you may probably have a bad picture with a small name to it, instead of a bad picture with a large name to it." This tone, though not what he had expected, on the whole suited Mr. Dorrit remarkably well. It showed that the gentleman, highly connected, and not a mere workman, would be under an obligation to him. He expressed his satisfaction in placing himself in Mr. Gowan's hands, and trusted that he would have the pleasure, in their characters of private gentlemen, of improving his acquaintance. "'You are very good,' said Gowan. "'I have not forsworn society, since I joined the Brotherhood of the Brush. 
the most delightful fellows on the face of the earth, and am glad enough to smell the old fine gunpowder now and then, though it did blow me into mid-air and my present calling. You'll not think, Mr. Dorrit, and here he laughed again, in the easiest way, that I am lapsing into the freemasonry of the craft, for it's not so. Upon my life I can't help betraying it wherever I go, though by Jupiter I love and honour the craft with all my might, if I propose a stipulation as to time and place. Ha! Mr. Dorrit could erect no hum suspicion of that kind on Mr. Gowan's frankness. "'Again, you are very good,' said Gowan. "'Mr. Dorrit, I hear you are going to Rome. I am going to Rome, having friends there.' Let me begin to do you the injustice I have conspired to do you, there, not here. We shall all be hurried during the rest of our stay here, and though there's not a poorer man with whole elbows in Venice than myself, I have not quite got all the amateur out of me yet, comprising the trade again, you see, and can't fall on order in a hurry for the mere sake of the sixpences. These remarks were not less favourably received by Mr. Dorrit, than their predecessors. They were the prelude to the first reception of Mr. and Mrs. Gowan at dinner, and they skilfully placed Gowan on his usual ground in the new family. His wife, too, they placed on her usual ground. Miss Fanny understood, with particular distinctness, that Mrs. Gowan's good looks had cost her husband very dear, that there had been a great disturbance about her in the Barnacle family, and that the dowager, Mrs. Gowan, nearly heart-broken, had resolutely set her face against the marriage until overpowered by her maternal feelings. Mrs. General likewise clearly understood that the attachment had occasioned much family grief and dissension. Of honest Mr. Meagles no mention was made, except that it was natural enough that a person of that sort should wish to raise his daughter out of his own obscurity, and that no one could blame him for trying his best to do so. Little Dorrit's interest in the fair subject of this easily accepted belief was too earnest and watchful to fail an accurate observation. She could see that it had its part in throwing upon Mrs. Gowan the touch of a shadow under which she lived, and she even had an instinctive knowledge that there was not the least truth in it. But it had an influence in placing obstacles in the way of her association with Mrs. Gowan, by making the prunes and prism school excessively polite to her but not very intimate with her, and little Dorrit, as an enforced sizar of that college, was obliged to submit herself humbly to its ordinances. Nevertheless, there was a sympathetic understanding already established between the two, which would have carried them over greater difficulties, and made a friendship out of a more restricted intercourse. As though accidents were determined to be favourable to it, they had a new assurance of congeniality, in the aversion which each perceived that the other felt towards Blandois of Paris, an aversion amounting to the repugnance and horror of a natural antipathy towards an odious creature of the reptile kind. And there was a passive congeniality between them, besides this active one. To both of them Blandois behaved in exactly the same manner, and to both of them his manner had uniformly something in it which they both knew to be different from his bearing towards others. The difference was too minute in its expression to be perceived by others, but they knew it to be there. A mere trick of his evil eyes, a mere turn of his smooth white hand, a mere hair's breadth of addition to the fall of his nose, and the rise of the moustache in the most frequent movement of his face, conveyed to both of them equally 
a swagger personal to themselves. It was as if he had said, I have a secret power in this quarter, I know what I know. This had never been felt by them both in so great a degree, and never by each so perfectly to the knowledge of the other, as on a day when he came to Mr. Dorrit's to take his leave before quitting Venice. Mrs. Gowan was herself there for the same purpose, and he came upon the two together, the rest of the family being out. The two had not been together five minutes, and the peculiar manner seemed to convey to them, "'You were going to talk about me. Ha! behold me here to prevent it.' "'Gowan is coming here,' said Blandois with a smile. Mrs. Gowan replied that he was not coming. "'Not coming?' said Blandois. "'Permit your devoted servant, when you leave here, to escort you home.' "'Thank you. I am not going home.' "'Not going home?' said Blandois. "'Then I am forlorn.' That he might be, but he was not so forlorn as to roam away and leave them together. He sat entertaining them with his finest compliments and his choicest conversation, but he conveyed to them all the time, no, 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 dear ladies, behold me here expressly to prevent it. He conveyed it to them with so much meaning, and he had such a diabolical persistency in him, that at length Mrs. Gowan rose to depart. On his offering his hand to Mrs. Gowan to lead her down the staircase, she retained little Dorrit's hand in hers, with a cautious pressure, and said, "'No, thank you. But, if you'll please, to see if my boatman is there, I shall be obliged to you.' It left him no choice but to go down before them. As he did so, hat in hand, Mrs. Gowan whispered, "'He killed the dog.' "'Does Mr. Gowan know it?' Little Dorrit whispered. "'No one knows it. Don't look towards me. Look towards him.' He will turn his face in a moment. No one knows it, but I am sure he did. You are? I, I think so, Little Dorrit answered. Henry likes him, and he will not think ill of him. He is so generous and open himself, but you and I feel sure that we think of him as he deserves. He argued with Henry that the dog had been already poisoned when he changed so, and sprang at him. Henry believes it, but we do not. I see he is listening, but can't hear. Good-bye, my love. Good-bye. The last words were spoken aloud, as the vigilant Blandois stopped, turned his head, and looked at them from the bottom of the staircase. Assuredly he did look then, though he looked his politest, as if any real philanthropist could have desired no better employment than to lash a great stone to his neck and drop him into the water flowing beyond the dark arched gateway in which he stood. No such benefactor to mankind being on the spot, he handed Mrs. Gowan to her boat, and stood there until it had shot out of the narrow view, when he handed himself into his own boat and followed. Little Dorrit had sometimes thought, and now thought again as she retraced her steps up the staircase, that he had made his way too easily into her father's house but so many and such varieties of people did the same, through Mr. Dorrit's participation in his elder daughter's society mania, that it was hardly an exceptional case. A perfect fury for making acquaintances on whom to impress their riches and importance had seized the house of Dorrit. It appeared on the whole to little Dorrit herself that this same society in which they lived greatly resembled 
a superior sort of marshalsea. Numbers of people seemed to come abroad, pretty much as people had come into the prison, through debt, through idleness, relationship, curiosity, and general unfitness for getting on at home. They were brought into these foreign towns, in the custody of couriers and local followers, just as the debtors had been brought into the prison. They prowled about the churches and picture-galleries, much in the old, dreary prison-yard manner. They were usually going away again to-morrow, or next week, and rarely knew their own minds, and seldom did what they said they would do, or went where they said they would go, in all this again, very like the prison debtors. They paid high for poor accommodation, and disparaged a place while they pretended to like it, which was exactly the Marshalsea custom. They were envied when they went away by people left behind, feigning not to want to go, and that again was the Marshalsea habit invariably. A certain set of words and phrases, as much belonging to tourists as the college and the snuggery belonged to the jail, was always in their mouths. They had precisely the same incapacity for settling down to anything as the prisoners used to have. They rather deteriorated one another, as the prisoners used to do, and they wore untidy dresses, and fell into a slouching way of life, still always like the people in the Marshalsea. The period of the family's stay at Venice came, in its course, to an end, and they moved, with their retinue, to Rome. Through a repetition of the former Italian scenes, growing more dirty and more haggard as they went on, and bringing them at length to where the very air was diseased, they passed to their destination. A fine residence had been taken for them on the Corso, and there they took up their abode, in a city where everything seemed to be trying to stand still for ever on the ruins of something else, except the water, which, following eternal laws, tumbled and rolled from its glorious multitude of fountains. Here it seemed to Little Dorrit that a change came over the Marshalsea spirit of their society, and that prunes and prism got the upper hand. Everybody was walking about St. Peter's and the Vatican on somebody else's cork-legs, and straining every visible object through somebody else's sieve. Nobody said what anything was, but everybody said what the Mrs. Generals, Mr. Eustace, or somebody else said it was. The whole body of travellers seemed to be a collection of voluntary human sacrifices, bound hand and foot, and delivered over to Mr. Eustace and his attendants, to have the entrails of their intellects arranged according to the taste of that sacred priesthood. Through the rugged remains of temples and tombs and palaces and senate-halls and theatres and amphitheatres of ancient days, hosts of tongue-tied and blindfolded moderns were carefully feeling their way, incessantly repeating prunes and prism in the endeavour to set their lips according to the received form. Mrs. General was in her pure element. Nobody had an opinion. There was a formation of service going on around her on an amazing scale, and it had not a flaw of courage or honest free speech in it. Another modification of prunes and prism insinuated itself on little Dorrit's notice very shortly after their arrival. They received an early visit from Mrs. Myrtle, who led that extensive department of life in the Eternal City that winter, and the skilful manner in which she and Fanny fenced with one another on the occasion almost made her quiet sister wink, like the glittering of small swords. "'So delighted,' said Mrs. Myrtle, "'to resume an acquaintance so inauspiciously begun at Martigny.' "'At Martigny, of course,' said Fanny. "'Charmed, I'm sure.' 
"'I understand,' said Mrs. Merdle, "'from my son Edmund Sparkler, that he has already improved that chance occasion. He has returned quite transported with Venice.' "'Indeed,' returned the careless Fanny, "'was he there long?' "'I might refer that question to Mr. Dorrit,' said Mrs. Merdle, turning the bosom towards that gentleman. "'Edmund, having been so much indebted to him for rendering his stay agreeable.' "'Oh, pray don't speak of it,' returned Fanny. "'I believe Papa had the pleasure of inviting Mr. Sparkler twice or thrice, but it was nothing.' We had so many people about us, and kept such open house, that if he had that pleasure, it was less than nothing. "'Except, my dear,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'except, ah, as it afforded me unusual gratification to um, show by any means, however slight and worthless, the ah, um, high estimation in which, in ah, common with the rest of the world, I hold so distinguished and princely a character as Mr. Merdle's.' The bosom received this tribute in its most engaging manner. "'Mr. Merdle?' observed Fanny, as a means of dismissing Mr. Sparkler into the background, is quite a theme of papa's. You must know, Mrs. Merdle. "'I have been, ha, uh, disappointed, madam,' said Mr. Dorrit, "'to understand from Mr. Sparkler that there is no great, hmm, probability of Mr. Merdle's coming abroad.' "'Why, indeed,' said Mrs. Merdle, he is so much engaged, and in such request, that I fear not. He has not been able to get abroad for years. You, Miss Dorrit, I believe, have been almost continually abroad for a long time. Oh, dear, yes, drawled Fanny, with the greatest hardihood, an immense number of years. So I should have inferred, said Mrs. Merdle. Exactly, said Fanny. I trust, however— resumed Mr. Dorrit, that if I have not the um, great advantage of becoming known to Mr. Merdle on this side of the Alps or Mediterranean, I shall have that honour on returning to England. It is an honour I particularly desire, and shall particularly esteem. Mr. Merdle, said Mrs. Merdle, who had been looking admiringly at Fanny through her eyeglass, will esteem it, I am sure, no less. Little Dorrit, still habitually thoughtful and solitary, though no longer alone, at first supposed this to be mere prunes and prism. But as her father, when they had been to a brilliant reception at Mrs. Merdle's, harped at their own family breakfast on his wish to know Mr. Merdle, with a contingent view of benefiting by the advice of that wonderful man in the disposal of his fortune, she began to think it had a real meaning, and to entertain a curiosity on her own part to see the shining light of the time. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven Book Two, Chapter Eight of Little Dorrit this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Eight. The Dowager Mrs. Gowan is reminded that it never does.
while the waters of Venice and the ruins of Rome were sunning themselves for the pleasure of the Dorrit family, and were daily being sketched out of all earthly proportion, lineament, and likeness, by travelling pencils innumerable, the firm of Doyce and Clennam hammered away in Bleeding Heart Yard, and the vigorous clink of iron upon iron was heard there through the working hours. The young partner had, by this time, brought the business into sound trim, and the elder, left free to follow his own ingenious devices, had done much to enhance the character of the factory. As an ingenious man, he had necessarily to encounter every discouragement that the ruling powers for a length of time had been able by any means to put in the way of this class of culprits, but that was only reasonable self-defence in the powers, since how to do it must obviously be regarded as the natural and mortal enemy of how not to do it. In this was to be found the basis of the wise system, by tooth and nail upheld by the Circumlocution Office, of warning every ingenious British subject to be ingenious at his peril, of harassing him, obstructing him, inviting robbers, by making his remedy uncertain and expensive, to plunder him, and at the best, of confiscating his property after a short term of enjoyment, as though invention were on a par with felony. The system had uniformly found great favour with the barnacles, and that was only reasonable, too, for one who worthily invents must be in earnest, and the barnacles abhorred and dreaded nothing half so much. That again was very reasonable, since in a country suffering under the affliction of a great amount of earnestness, there might, in an exceeding short space of time, be not a single barnacle left sticking to a post. Daniel Doyce faced his condition, with its pains and penalties attached to it, and soberly worked on for the work's sake. Clennam cheering him with a hearty cooperation was a moral support to him, besides doing good service in his business relation. The concern prospered, and the partners were fast friends. But Daniel could not forget the old design of so many years. It was not in reason to be expected that he should. If he could have lightly forgotten it, he could never have conceived it, or had the patience and perseverance to work it out. So Clennam thought, when he sometimes observed him of an evening looking over the models and drawings, and consoling himself by muttering with a sigh as he put them away again, that the thing was as true as it ever was. To show no sympathy with so much endeavour, and so much disappointment, would have been to fail in what Clennam regarded as among the implied obligations of his partnership. A revival of the passing interest in the subject which had been by chance awakened at the door of the Circumlocution Office originated in this feeling. He asked his partner to explain the invention to him. "'Having a lenient consideration,' he stipulated, for my being no workman, Doyce. "'No workman?' said Doyce. "'You would have been a thorough workman if you had given yourself to it. You have as good a head for understanding such things as I have met with.' "'A totally uneducated one, I am sorry to add,' said Clennam. "'I don't know that,' returned Doyce, "'and I wouldn't have you say that. No man of sense who has been generally improved and has improved himself, can be called quite uneducated as to anything. I don't particularly favour mysteries. I would as soon, on a fair and clear explanation, be judged by one class of man as another, provided he had the qualification I've named." "'At all events,' said Clennam, "'this sounds as if we were exchanging compliments. 
but we know we are not. I shall have the advantage of as plain an explanation as can be given. "'Well,' said Daniel, in his steady, even way, "'I'll try to make it so.' He had the power, often to be found in union with such a character, of explaining what he himself perceived and meant, with the direct force and distinctness with which it struck his own mind. His manner of demonstration was so orderly and neat and simple that it was not easy to mistake him. There was something almost ludicrous in the complete irreconcilability of a vague conventional notion that he must be a visionary man, with the precise sagacious travelling of his eye and thumb over the plans, their patient stoppages at particular points, their careful returns to other points whence little channels of explanation had to be traced up, and his steady manner of making everything good and everything sound at each important stage, before taking his hearer on a line's breadth further. His dismissal of himself from his description was hardly less remarkable. He never said, I discovered this adaptation, or invented that combination, but showed the whole thing as if the divine artificer had made it, and he had happened to find it. So modest he was about it, such a pleasant touch of respect was mingled with his quiet admiration of it, and so calmly convinced he was that it was established on irrefragable laws. Not only that evening, but for several succeeding evenings, Clennam was quite charmed by this investigation. The more he pursued it, and the oftener he glanced at the grey head bending over it, and the shrewd eye kindling with pleasure in it and love of it, instrument for probing his heart, though it had been made for twelve long years, the less he could reconcile it to his younger energy, to let it go without one effort more. At length he said, "'Doyce, it came to this at last, that the business was to be sunk with heaven knows how many more wrecks, or begun all over again.' "'Yes,' returned Doyce, "'that's what the nobleman and gentleman made of it after a dozen years.' "'And pretty fellows, too,' said Clennam bitterly. Ah, "'The usual thing,' observed Doyce. "'I must not make a martyr of myself, when I'm one of so large a company.' "'Relinquish it, or begin it all over again,' mused Clennam. "'That was exactly the long and short of it,' said Doyce. "'Then, my friend,' cried Clennam, starting up and taking his work-roughened hand, "'it shall be gone all over again.' Doyce looked alarmed, and replied in a hurry, for him, "'No, no, better put it by, far better put it by. It will be heard of one day. I, I can put it by. My good Clennam, I have put it by. It's all at an end.' "'Yes, Doyce,' returned Clennam. At an end, as far as your efforts and rebuffs are concerned, I admit, but not as far as mine are. I am younger than you. I have only once set foot in that precious office, and I am fresh game for them. Come, I'll try them. You shall do exactly as you have been doing since we have been together. I will add, as I easily can, to what I have been doing, the attempt to get public justice done to you. "'and, unless I have some success to report, you shall hear no more of it.' Daniel Doyce was still reluctant to consent, and again and again urged that they had better put it by. But it was natural that he should gradually allow himself to be over-persuaded by Clennam, and should yield. Yield, he did. 
so Arthur resumed the long and hopeless labour of striving to make way with the circumlocution office. The waiting-rooms of that department soon began to be familiar with his presence, and he was generally ushered into them by its janitors much as a pickpocket might be shown into a police office. The principal difference being that the object of the latter class of public business is to keep the pickpocket, while the circumlocution object was to get rid of Clennam. However, he was resolved to stick to the great department, and so the work of form-filling, corresponding, minuting, memorandum-making, signing, countersigning, counter-countersigning, referring backwards and forwards, and referring sideways, crosswise, and zigzag, recommenced. Here arises a feature of the circumlocution office not previously mentioned in the present record. When that admirable department got into trouble, and was by some infuriated members of Parliament, whom the smaller barnacles almost suspected of labouring under diabolic possession, attacked on the merits of no individual case, but as an institution wholly abominable and bedlamite, then the noble or right honourable barnacle, who represented it in the house, would smite that member, and cleave him asunder, with a statement of the quantity of business, for the prevention of business, done by the circumlocution office. Then would that noble or right honourable barnacle hold in his hand a paper containing a few figures, to which, with the permission of the house, he would entreat its attention. Then would the inferior barnacles exclaim, obeying orders, Hear, 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 and read. Then would the noble or right honourable barnacle perceive, Sir, from this little document, which he thought might carry conviction even to the perversest mind, derisive laughter and cheering from the barnacle fry, that within the short compass of the last financial half-year this much maligned department, cheers, had written and received fifteen thousand letters, loud cheers, had written twenty-four thousand minutes, louder cheers, and thirty-two thousand five hundred and seventeen memoranda, vehement cheering. Nay, an ingenious gentleman connected with the department, and himself a valuable public servant, had done him the favour to make a curious calculation of the amount of stationery consumed in it during the same period. It formed a part of this same short document, and he derived from it the remarkable fact that the sheets of foolscap paper it had devoted to the public service would pave the footway on both sides of Oxford Street, from end to end, and leave nearly a quarter of a mile to spare for the park immense cheering and laughter. While of tape, red tape, it had used enough to stretch in graceful festoons from Hyde Park Corner to the General Post Office. Then, amidst a burst of official exultation, would the noble or right honourable barnacle sit down, leaving the mutilated fragments of the member on the field. No one, after that exemplary demolition of him, would have the hardihood to hint that the more the circumlocution office did, the less was done and that the greatest blessing it could confer on an unhappy public would be to do nothing. With sufficient occupation on his hands, now that he had this additional task, such a task had many and many a serviceable man died of before his day, Arthur Clennam led a life of slight variety. Regular visits to his mother's dull sick-room, and visits scarcely less regular to Mr. Meagles at Twickenham, were its only changes during many months. He sadly and sorely missed little Dorrit. He had been prepared to miss her very much, but not so much. He knew to the full extent only through experience 
what a large place in his life was left blank when her familiar little figure went out of it. He felt, too, that he must relinquish the hope of its return, understanding the family character sufficiently well to be assured that he and she were divided by a broad ground of separation. The old interest he had had in her, and her old trusting reliance on him, were tinged with melancholy in his mind. So soon had change stolen over them, and so soon had they glided into the past with other secret tendernesses. When he received her letter, he was greatly moved, but did not the less sensibly feel that she was far divided from him by more than distance. It helped him to a clearer and keener perception of the place assigned him by the family. He saw that he was cherished in her grateful remembrance secretly, and that they resented him with the jail and the rest of its belongings. Through all these meditations, which every day of his life crowded about her, he thought of her otherwise in the old way. She was his innocent friend, his delicate child, his dear little Dorrit. This very change of circumstances fitted curiously in with the habit, begun on the night when the roses floated away, of considering himself as a much older man than his years really made him. He regarded her from a point of view which in its remoteness, tender as it was, he little thought would have been unspeakable agony to her. He speculated about her future destiny, and about the husband she might have, with an affection for her which would have drained her heart of its dearest drop of hope, and broken it. Everything about him tended to confirm him in the custom of looking on himself as an elderly man, from whom such aspirations as he had combated, in the case of Minnie Gowan, though that was not so long ago either, reckoning by months and seasons, were finally departed. His relations with her father and mother were like those on which a widower son-in-law might have stood. If the twin sister who was dead had lived to pass away in the bloom of womanhood, and he had been her husband, the nature of his intercourse with Mr. and Mrs. Meagles would probably have been just what it was. This imperceptibly helped to render habitual the impression within him that he had done with and dismissed that part of life. He invariably heard of Minnie from them, as telling them in her letters how happy she was, and how she loved her husband, but inseparable from that subject, he invariably saw the old cloud on Mr. Meagles's face. Mr. Meagles had never been quite so radiant since the marriage, as before. He had never quite recovered the separation from Pet. He was the same good-humoured, open creature, but as if his face, from being much turned towards the pictures of his two children, which could show him only one look, unconsciously adopted a characteristic from them. It always had now, through all its changes of expression, a look of loss in it. One wintry Saturday, when Clennam was at the cottage, the dowager Mrs. Gowan drove up, in the Hampton Court equipage, which pretended to be the exclusive equipage of so many individual proprietors. She descended, in her shady ambuscade of green fan, to favour Mr. and Mrs. Meagles with a call. "'And how do you both do, Papa and Mamma Meagles?' said she, encouraging her humble connections. "'And when did you last hear from, or about, my poor fellow?' "'My poor fellow was her son, and this mode of speaking of him politely kept alive, without any offence in the world, the pretence that he had fallen a victim to the Meagles' wiles. "'And the dear pretty one?' said Mrs. Gowan. "'Have you later news of her than I have?' Which also delicately implied that her son had been captured by mere beauty, 
and under its fascination had foregone all sorts of worldly advantages. "'I am sure,' said Mrs. Gowan, without straining her attention on the answers she received, "'it's an unspeakable comfort to know they continue happy. My poor fellow is of such a restless disposition, and has been so used to roving about, and to being inconstant and popular among all manner of people, that it's the greatest comfort in life. I suppose they're as poor as mice, Papa Meagles?' Mr. Meagles, fidgety under the question, replied, "'I hope not, ma'am. I hope they will manage their little income.' "'Oh, my dearest Meagles!' returned the lady, tapping him on the arm with a green fan, and then adroitly interposing it between a yawn and the company. "'How can you, as a man of the world, and one of the most business-like of human beings—for you know you are business-like, and a great deal too much for us who are not—which went to the former purpose, by making Mr. Meagles out to be an artful schemer—how can you talk about their managing their little means? My poor dear fellow! the idea of his managing hundreds, and the sweet pretty creature too, the notion of her managing. Papa Meagles, don't.' "'Well, ma'am,' said Mr. Meagles gravely, "'I'm sorry to admit, then, that Henry certainly does anticipate his means.' "'My dear good man, I use no ceremony with you, because we are a kind of relations. Positively, Mamma Meagles?' exclaimed Mrs. Gowan cheerfully, as if the absurd coincidence then flashed upon her for the first time. "'A kind of relations. My dear good man, in this world none of us can have everything our own way.' This again went to the former point, and showed Mr. Meagles with all good breeding that, so far, he had been brilliantly successful in his deep designs. Mrs. Gowan thought they had so good a one that she dwelt upon it, repeating— not everything, no, no, in this world we must not expect everything, Papa Meagles. "'And may I ask, ma'am,' retorted Mr. Meagles, a little heightened in colour, "'who does expect everything?' "'Oh, nobody, nobody,' said Mrs. Gowan. "'I was going to say, but you put me out, you interrupting Papa. What was I going to say?' Drooping her large green fan, she looked musingly at Mr. Meagles, while she thought about it, a performance not tending to the cooling of that gentleman's rather heated spirits. "'Ah, yes, to be sure,' said Mrs. Gowan. "'You must remember that my poor fellow has always been accustomed to expectations. They may have been realised, or they may not have been realised. Let us say, then, may not have been realised.' observed Mr. Meagles. The dowager for a moment gave him an angry look, but tossed it off with her head and her fan, and pursued the tenor of her way in her former manner. "'It makes no difference. My poor fellow has been accustomed to that sort of thing, and of course you knew it, and were prepared for the consequences. I myself always clearly foresaw the consequences, and am not surprised. And you must not be surprised. In fact, can't be surprised, must have been prepared for it." Mr. Meagles looked at his wife and at Clennam, bit his lip, and coughed. "'And now here's my poor fellow,' 
Mrs. Gowan pursued, receiving notice that he is to hold himself in expectation of a baby, and all the expenses attendant on such an addition to his family. Ah, oh, poor Henry! But it can't be helped now. It's too late to help it now. Only don't talk of anticipating means, Papa Meagles, as a discovery, because that would be too much. Too much, ma'am said Mr. Meagles, as seeking an explanation. "'There, there,' said Mrs. Gowan, putting him in his inferior place with an expressive action of her hand. "'Too much for my poor fellow's mother to bear at this time of day. They are fast married, and can't be unmarried. There, there, I, I know that. You needn't tell me that, Papa Meagles. I know it very well.' what was it i said just now that it was a great comfort they continued happy it is to be hoped that they will still continue happy it is to be hoped pretty one will do everything she can to make my poor fellow happy and keep him contented papa and mamma meagles we had better say no more about it we never did look at this subject from the same side and we never shall there there now i am good truly having by this time said everything she could say in maintenance of her wonderfully mythical position and in admonition to mr meagles that he must not expect to bear his honours of alliance too cheaply mrs gowan was disposed to forego the rest if mr meagles had submitted to a glance of entreaty from mrs meagles and an expressive gesture from clennam he would have left her in the undisturbed enjoyment of this state of mind but pet was the darling and pride of his heart and if he could ever have championed her more devotedly or loved her better than in the days when she was the sunlight of his house it would have been now when as its daily grace and delight she was lost to it mrs gowan ma'am said mr meagles i have been a plain man all my life if i was to try no matter whether on myself on somebody else or both any genteel mystifications I should probably not succeed in them. "'Papa Meagles,' returned the dowager, with an affable smile, but with the bloom on her cheeks standing out a little more vividly than usual, as the neighbouring surface became paler, "'probably not.' "'Therefore, my good madam,' said Mr. Meagles, at great pains to restrain himself, "'I hope I may.' without offence ask to have no such mystification played off upon me mamma meagles observed mrs gowan your good man is incomprehensible her turning to that worthy lady was an artifice to bring her into the discussion quarrel with her and vanquish her mr meagles interposed to prevent that consummation mother said he you are inexpert my dear and it is not a fair match let me beg of you to remain quiet come mrs gowan come let us try to be sensible let us try to be good-natured let us try to be fair don't you pity henry and i won't pity pet and don't be one-sided my dear madam it's not considerate it's not kind. Don't let us say that we hope Pet will make Henry happy, or even that we hope Henry will make Pet happy. Mr. Meagles himself 
did not look happy as he spoke the words, but let us hope they will make each other happy. "'Yes, sure, and there leave it, father,' said Mrs. Meagles, the kind-hearted and comfortable. "'Why, mother, no,' returned Mr. Meagles, "'not exactly there. I can't quite leave it there. I must say just half a dozen words more. Mrs. Gowan, I hope I am not oversensitive. I believe I don't look it.' "'Indeed you do not.' said Mrs. Gowan, shaking her head and the great green fan together for emphasis. "'Thank you, ma'am. That's well. Notwithstanding which, I feel a little—I don't want to use a strong word. Now shall I say hurt?' asked Mr. Meagles at once with frankness and moderation, and with a conciliatory appeal in his tone. "'Say what you like,' answered Mrs. Gowan. "'It is perfectly indifferent to me.' "'No, no, don't say that,' urged Mr. Meagles, "'because that's not responding amiably. "'I feel a little hurt when I hear references made "'to consequences having been foreseen, "'and to its being too late now, and so forth.' "'Do you, Papa Meagles?' said Mrs. Gowan. "'I'm not surprised.' "'Well, ma'am,' reasoned Mr. Meagles, "'I was in hopes you would have been at least surprised, "'because to hurt me wilfully on so tender a subject is surely not generous.' "'I am not responsible,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'for your conscience, you know.' Poor Mr. Meagles looked aghast with astonishment. "'If I am unluckily obliged to carry a cap about with me which is yours and fits you,' pursued Mrs. Gowan. "'Don't blame me for its pattern, Papa Meagles, I beg.' "'Why, good Lord, ma'am,' Mr. Meagles broke out, "'that's as much as to state. Now, Papa Meagles, Papa Meagles,' said Mrs. Gowan, who became extremely deliberate and prepossessing in manner whenever that gentleman became at all warm. "'Perhaps to prevent confusion, I had better speak for myself than trouble your kindness to speak for me. It's as much as to state you begin. If you please, I will finish the sentence. It is as much as to state, not that I wish to press it or even recall it, for it is of no use now, and my only wish is to make the best of existing circumstances— that from the first to the last I always objected to this match of yours, and at a very late period yielded a most unwilling consent to it. "'Mother!' cried Mr. Meagles. "'Do you hear this? Arthur, do you hear this?' "'The room being of a convenient size,' said Mrs. Gowan, looking about as she fanned herself, and quite charmingly adapted in all respects to conversation, I should imagine I am audible in any part of it. Some moments passed in silence, before Mr. Meagles could hold himself in his chair with sufficient security to prevent his breaking out of it at the next word he spoke. At last he said, "'Ma'am, I am very unwilling to revive them.' "'But I must remind you what my opinions and my course were, all along, on that unfortunate subject.' "'Oh, my dear sir,' said Mrs. Gowan, smiling and shaking her head with accusatory intelligence, 
they were well understood by me i assure you i never ma'am said mr meagles knew unhappiness before that time i never knew anxiety before that time it was a time of such distress to me that that mr meagles could really say no more about it in short but passed his handkerchief before his face i understood the whole affair said mrs gowan composedly looking over her fan as you have appealed to mr clennam i may appeal to mr clennam too he knows whether i did or not i am very unwilling said clennam looked to by all parties to take any share in this discussion more especially because i wish to preserve the best understanding and the clearest relations with mr henry gowan i have very strong reasons indeed for entertaining that wish mrs gowan attributed certain views of furthering the marriage to my friend here in conversation with me before it took place and i endeavoured to undeceive her i represented that i knew him as i did and do to be strenuously opposed to it both in opinion and action you see said mrs gowan turning the palms of her hands towards mr meagles as if she were justice herself representing to him that he had better confess for he had not a leg to stand on you see very good now papa and mamma meagles both here she rose allow me to take the liberty of putting an end to this rather formidable controversy i will not say another word upon its merits i will only say that it is an additional proof of what one knows from all experience that this kind of thing never answers as my poor fellow himself would say that it never pays in one word that it never does mr meagles asked what kind of thing it is in vain said mrs gowan for people to attempt to get on together who have such extremely different antecedents who are jumbled against each other in this accidental matrimonial sort of way and who cannot look at the untoward circumstance which has shaken them together in the same light it never does mr meagles was beginning permit me to say ma'am no don't returned mrs gowan why should you it is an ascertained fact it never does i will therefore if you please go my way leaving you to yours i shall at all times be happy to receive my poor fellow's pretty wife and i shall always make a point of being on the most affectionate terms with her but as to these terms semi-family and semi-stranger semi-goring and semi-boring they form a state of things quite amusing in its impracticability. I assure you, it never does." The dowager here made a smiling obeisance, rather to the room than to any one in it, and therewith took a final farewell of papa and mamma Meagles. Clennam stepped forward to hand her to the pill-box, which was at the service of all the pills in Hampton Court Palace, and she got into that vehicle with distinguished serenity, and was driven away thenceforth the dowager with a light and careless humour often recounted to her particular acquaintances how after a hard trial she had found it impossible to know those people who belonged to henry's wife and who had made that desperate set to catch him 
whether she had come to the conclusion beforehand that to get rid of them would give her favourite pretence a better air, might save her some occasional inconvenience, and could risk no loss. The pretty creature being fast married, and her father devoted to her, was best known to herself. Though this history has its opinion on that point too, and decidedly in the affirmative. End of Book Two, Chapter Eight Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then place a five dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live. Bets and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.